Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What we're going to do here in a, in a good half hour, we have Catherine Mann with us with Citigroup, is to go to her, her acclaim, her fame out of MIT and all that she's done in <laughs> academics. And right. it dovetails with the story of 2019, which is a trade war. And then we'll talk about the equity markets and you know the U.S. economy and that here right. in, in a bit. Did, did, you, you wrote a classic in 1999. You redefined with Michael Rosenberg, codependency and dysfunction between China and the U.S., 2003, 2004. You're one of the, you're truly one of the experts on this. Did you see a trade war coming? I didn't think that a trade war was inevitable, um, but I do think that um, there was a definitely a pivot with the change in leadership in China, and that pivot was towards a more state-oriented uh, and a move away from the um, objective of more private-oriented enterprise running running the economy. Uh, there was also a pivot away from liberalization of the capital account and a less management of the RMB. And there was definitely a pivot toward a more um, industrial policy strategy towards um, a uh, national development. And Paul, we see this this morning with uh, whispers out of China again of an accommodation yes. in their policies as yes. well. So, Catherine, yeah. this move, I guess, back towards more state control of the economy, this is tied to Mr. Xi. Is this long-term trend, do you think? Is this something? Because it seemed like China was yeah. moving more towards yeah. market economies a little yep. bit on the margin. Yes, Are we were. now shifting back, and you think that's permanent? Well, I think it's hard to make a judgment about uh, permanence. But um, I think the what's, mo what's most interesting to think about is uh, the question of does, uh, does a uh, heavily managed direct approach to um, becoming a frontier innovator uh, along the dimensions that they want to, which is the manu you know the manufacturing 2020 2025. Can you do that with state direction? I think that's really the most interesting question. It's always been a question about industrial policy: how much state intervention, whether it be a market economy or not, um, how much state intervention can get you to the frontier of innovation. And so I think that's what is uh, up for grabs here. Um, and I think it's a, the evidence in the past has been that um, if you're not at the frontier, state intervention can, can get you there because you know what you're trying to get to. The frontier is uh, somebody else is in front of you. Um, but can you actually break through the frontier? Can you make the frontier as a state, uh, state direction? The, the, the evidence on that is, is much more limited. Right. Is it so as we change our tact under this administration to more of a bilateral negotiation yeah. between the U.S. Mm -hmm. and China? What is your thought on that versus what had been the trend, I think, prior to that for a period of time of mm -hmm. multilateral engagement mm -hmm. with China? Is there, Do you think one is better than the other? 
Well, I think this this administration has gone bilateral uh, in every single negotiation okay. yep. that it has been involved with. Even uh, USMCA was ultimately broken right. up into two bilateral um, discussions and negotiations. So, um, there is no question that multilateral trade negotiations are superior to bilateral. Um, bilateral are one-off, one-off deals. And um, we are a global economy. Um, we're kind of eroding away from that right now, but but ultimately, uh, it is better if we are a global economy and uh, you have market opening across all different uh, economies, uh, and that's where you get the benefits of the greatest variety, the biggest scale, the lowest prices, um, and the more uh, value chains that create the greatest productivity. What you end up with bilateral negotiations, and this has been well known uh, for quite some time, Jagdish Bhagwati called it uh, probably 20 years ago, spaghetti bowl. Okay. A spaghetti bowl where uh, the rules of origin, because remember, if it's a bilateral trade negotiation, you have to have rules of origin to identify who's in and who's out. Of a, of a deal. And those costs of uh, rules of origin um, are extremely expensive for companies to abide by. So you're raising the costs uh, of doing trade, of engaging in trade when it's done on a bilateral basis. And with regard to China in particular, um, the issue that I'm most concerned about is the with, withdraw, the US is sort of taking an approach of withdrawing. Uh, breaking up that relationship, withdrawing, and becoming more national-focused. And that takes away, you know, that creates a a situation where China can go into all of the other markets that the U.S. is seceding from. Let's take this to what you do at Citigroup, which is advise your institution and your business relationships every day on this, and fold it in also with Paul Sweeney and what Bloomberg Intelligence is doing worldwide. The, The gambit here is phonies like me fly to Hong Kong, I land at the airport, I get in a fancy car, I go to the hotel, I go to the office, I hotel, office, hotel. I get back in the car, <laughs> come back home, and I say I went to China. I mean, that's the truth. <laughs> and folks, trust me, I didn't go to China. The yeah. real world for Citigroup clients is maybe they go to Hong Kong and then an hour later they're on a plane to Chengdu. Is that broken in this trade war, that, that business relationship of American businesses with their China equivalents? Well, that's certainly part of the objective is to um, break the value chains that have been put into place between by U.S. business uh, in order to produce for China uh, or to use China as a production platform uh, for back to the United States or for other markets. And so the objective of, of, the, of the trade war is, and the tariffs in particular, are to make it very costly to do that. Now, what companies are doing is, um, you know, some of them already had kind of in their in their desk drawer yeah. uh, the plan for moving away from China when it became more more expensive to to to, to produce there, and they've taken those out of the desk drawer and they've and they've started. So they're moving flying on that. to Hanoi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. so they're flying to Hanoi exactly, or or you know. Yeah, exactly. So, Catherine, I mean, give us a sense. It, it appears that we're moving towards. If I can. Sorry for the late, latest yeah. tweet, kind of a phase one type of deal. Right. Is this much to do about nothing? Because until we get to phase two or phase three, this is kind of just soybeans going back and forth. The phase one deal um, looks a lot like what was on the table in May. 
Yep. Um, and of course, that did not uh, that fell apart. So um, we're 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 cautiously optimistic um, as a team that there will be something signed, but that its uh, implications are, are limited, uh, very limited. Um, yeah. You know. And and the argu- the argument that it's the first of a of a set of of, of uh, broader uh, relationships, broader negotiations. I think it's way too early to to, to come to that conclusion because mm-hmm. the hard stuff is still the stuff that's on the table. Catherine Mann of Citigroup. I, I really I really can't say enough. It's just a few years ago. <clears throat> she was just out of MIT at the time, 1999. <laughs> uh, is a trade ago. deficit sustainable? It's still worth reading today and a primer for all, including. Uh, possibly the gentleman at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Kitschuks was with us uh, during the um, the goodness of uh, Prime Minister Johnson, that extraordinary election that we saw with the Prime Minister and the shifts for the United Kingdom. Now on this day, we'll talk to Mr. Jukes, the Society General, about a bigger, broader picture as well. Kid, I want to go back to Ken Rogoff when he was on the watch at the IMF, did all sorts of research with the team on fixed versus floating or even fixed that's a banded currency versus floating. How different is your study of dollar renminbi if it's a floating dollar in a sort of kind of like fixed renminbi? How does that change your study? I think it changes everything. When, when look, when you've got, if if you if you reckon that twenty percent of of world trade is 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 United States, uh, China, and Europe, if if you ha- have a fixed or or pretty fixed relationship between two of those parties, it locks down one side of the world. If all three float freely against each other, we we live in a we live in a world where all the other currencies orbit to different degrees around each of those three currencies. And it makes it more difficult, but it also means that we have to, we have to understand. And the one we understand least well is the Chinese yuan, because as it moves more, as it floats more freely, but not completely freely, what we're faced with is we we get far less information about monetary policy, about currency policy from the Chinese than we do with the the bombardments on policy that we get. Um, in in Europe and in the United States, so we, we we kind of have to work it out for ourselves. But let you know, in terms of its share of world trade and and influence on the currencies and the economies of the rest of the world, make no mistake, the Chinese yuan is as important as the euro or the U.S. dollar now, uh, and in some ways more important because it, because we understand it less well. So, Kit, can you give us a bear case for the U.S. dollar? I have not heard one. Uh, the bear case for the U.S. dollar is that there's a certain amount of complacency about uh, the U.S. economy so that the best thing that could happen to it next year is it does about as well as uh, people expect and continues at the current kind of gradually slowing pace. So the consensus is something like 1.8% growth next year, and the Fed does not very much of anything through that period. The bear case is uh, that the earnings cycle has clearly turned down, and as that continues to be the most important thing driving or, or creating an economic cycle, the dangers are all to the downside. That That's the economic case. The other side of this, frankly, is the dollar is just about as expensive in real trade-weighted terms as it can usefully get. 
Um, and so two things can happen. It can stay here or it can weaken. Getting significantly stronger is going to be yeah. really difficult. Well, are you predicting that we stay here? I mean, you know, I'll be honest, folks, a strong dollar call this year has been just stay here. That's been very uh, against consensus and well. What's your call for next year? Is it stay here? Uh, my call for next year is that the dollar will do better than the Chinese yuan and the euro will do better than both of them and the yen will do better than all what of them. What does a stronger euro do to Euro European GDP and European exports being so open? It, it doesn't help, so it won't go up um, very much. The, the, the context, again, is that if you think that since the creation of the euro, the euro has traded a little bit below purchasing power parity against the dollar. Uh, against the sort of the calculation then based on just stuff we buy in the shops. That level is 136 now. So I know folks who think that fair value for euro dollar is 135. We are barely above 110. We are the best part of 25% below that le level at the moment. I, I don't think that if the interest rate differential between the US and Europe narrows, if the bond yield differential um, narrows to any significant degree. I don't think we can stay here forever. I don't think the Europeans will like it but for one minute, but I think that the, the balance of, of, of ed relative economic performance uh, is just beginning to shift in its favor. It's not going to, so if it, if it makes it to 120, that, that's making it less than half the way back from, from where mm -hmm. someone might think that fair value should be. We need a different way to think about fair value in that sense because the Chinese yuan plays such a big role. But, but it's, the, it's again this piece that it's not inconceivable that once that move happens that it happens more in the second half of next year than the first half, that it's slow and that we spend most time just waiting on the U.S. economy and the European economy, which is, which is less volatile than the U.S., just does a little bit more miserably slowly. The, the game changer that, that could, be, could come but isn't necessarily going to come is if the Europeans wake up one morning and realize that easing fiscal policy is about the most sensible thing they could do um, at any point in time, but right now especially. So, Kit, I'm looking at my uh, chart here, uh, basically uh, just a one-year chart for the sterling. I'm actually surprised as we pull back down below 130 that we didn't get a more sustained move above 130 and holding above 130, maybe even moving higher on the Brexit. Where do you think sterling trades here and what's kind of the key determinant? I think the key determinant of where sterling trades against the dollar next year will be where the euro trades against the dollar. I think sterling is now going to be much quieter against the euro. And, and remember, the, the, you know, the UK, despite everything, does much, much, much more trade with Europe than with the United States. So it's, it's what happens to the euro that really matters. In other words, we can, get, we can get to 140 against the dollar if the euro can get to 120 against the dollar. But if, if the euro stays here, we're just not going to go up much against the dollar. Otherwise, we'd have to take the level against the euro back mm -hmm. to the kind of place we were at before this referendum. And the referendum's not going to go away. We might, yeah. we might conceivably get a clean exit, but we're not going to put this back and never do it. Tell us about, and this was a, a news item last week, folks. It's sort of esoteric on a Monday before the holiday season, but we'll go wonkish on you. Sweden has a unique central bank experiment. They have a history of this, certainly going back to the glory and risk of 1992, the sweat, I should say, of 1992. Is there a way Kit to play the courage of Sweden where they say enough to negative interest rates? 
Um, I think the way to play it was was possibly to do it in advance of, of, of when they did it. So that the Swedish krona had a big run when they first indicated that they were going to get interest rates back to zero. The, the probability now is that having gone from negative rates to zero rates, they stay at zero for a really long time and something has to change in the economy. You, again, the, the key here is, and, and, it, and I think they're an, they're an incredibly important lesson for everywhere, but the, the key here is once you accept that negative interest rates have... Um, negative connotations for the economy, that they're not just a win-win, and they're definitely not just a win-win for the economy, then you have to be prepared to use fiscal policy uh, as a tool for helping drive the economy in the short-medium term in a way you didn't before. What you learn from, Swi- from Sweden is if easier fiscal policy takes on as a, as a fashion around the world um, outside the United States, the Swedish kroner will fly more likely, to my money, it's not the Swedes that'll be the ones that ease fiscal policy. It'll be somebody else. Um, right now, though, um, I guess the, 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 the trade that I would like is, is that the Norwegian kroner is catching up on Swedish kroner strength pretty quickly. Uh, and I would rather own the Norwegian kroner than the Swedish kroner. But, yeah. but, but the lesson from Sweden is it's all about fiscal policy in 2020. We have to. We have, oh, uh, somehow, uh, do we have Mr. Juke scheduled for January? We have to. We'll have to drive forward that conversation. Absolutely. It's very, he was a very on the edge of MMT. <laughs> Kit Jukes, thank you so much with Sakchen. Always, and, and just a wonderful help with us with perspective uh, this year as well. Boeing coming out with a press release management changes. David Calhoun named president and CEO Lawrence Kellner to become chairman of the board. Uh, they're saying new leadership to bring renewed commitment to transparency and better communication with regulators and customers and safety. So a big change at the top, at the top, Tom, here, uh, new CEO. Let's bring on our good friend George Ferguson, Bloomberg Intelligence. He follows Boeing and all things aerospace. George, does this surprise you? We're getting a new leadership here, the uh, CEO out, new CEO in. No, I think, uh, you know, we, we thought maybe it would take a little bit longer. We thought Boeing might try to put the MAX back in service before they changed leadership. But uh, so it doesn't surprise us just maybe a little bit earlier than we expected. So, George, I mean, I guess when we look back on this with hindsight, you know, over the past year, it really does seem like management either didn't really understand the scope of the problem, didn't manage the parties, whether it's the FAA, whether it's investors, whether it's, you know, it's competitors and customers. What do you think was the real undoing here of, or the real mistake from Boeing? You know, I mean, we had seen, I would say, a distinctive change in the way Boeing communicated to all kinds of constituencies with, uh, with Dennis Muhlenberg. And I think that um, you know that didn't help during the uh, during the crisis. I think they had become they provided less information. Uh, yeah. you know, they got much tighter with everything. They, um, I think there was a little bit of right. You know, feeling that they were at the top of their game, things were going right. great, and they didn't have to give all yeah. this information. And I think uh, I think that that hurt them right. terribly in this in this. Uh, in these latest problems. George, David Calhoun is a uniquely qualified guy for this, not only with his relationship to Wall Street and private equity and the Blackstone Group, but I'm really going to go to what I learned in an interview years ago, that the pros look at an airplane as engines with a fuselage attached, which I really didn't understand. And he has, as a business executive, the working knowledge of General Electric's airplane engine business. Describe his 
competencies on engines, which are the, clearly the part of the, the tragedy of these two plane crashes. What unique skills does he bring after his work with, with Caterpillar and that and his work with Blackstone and particularly with GE's aircraft business? I, just, I mean, GE is so uh, deep into the uh, aviation business, right, and the um, the engine business, and I think that just means that he has a uh, a very good understanding of of the industry. Uh, obviously, he has, he has some great experience, um, and I, I just think that gives him GE executes, I think, quite quite well for I think all the for all the abuse I'd say GE is getting in the marketplace as it as it restructures itself. On the aircraft side, yeah. I think it's been an outstanding executor, and so I think he brings that that skill set to, to Boeing. The interesting thing, though, is that we just let a GE guy go at uh, Boeing Commercial Airplanes, right? McAllister was running commercial airplanes, and he just went out the door. So we had a GE guy go out the door as well. But what, uh, what's topic? I mean, I mean, George, what's so good about your skill set is you actually know the operational skill sets of this company and this company in crisis. What's his to-do list today? Is he supposed to speak to employees? Is he supposed to speak to the FAA? I mean, what's what's the immediate to-do list for Mr. Calhoun as he replaces Mr. Muhlenberg? Uh, yeah, I think he has to. I think he has to get with the FAA and and repair that um, relationship yeah. as quickly as possible. Right? I think r- really they, they need the FAA to review the Max and help get it back into service as soon as possible. They need they need to go to the FAA and 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 just be ready to support them in that effort and and make sure that that's, that's an absolutely positive relationship because so key to this company's future is yeah. getting that Max back in the air and getting things moving again. Paul, I want to be careful on the headlines here. Mr. Calhoun is joining Boeing as CEO January 13. Okay. And in the in the in the the headlines following on, Mr. Greg Smith will serve as interim CEO. Right. Yeah. So okay, we had Mr. Muhlenberg actually uh, resigning. So George, it, it's interesting here. Just give us a sense of the state of the relationship between Boeing and the regulators. I mean, it seemed like for decades, if not for all time, it was a very strong, close working relationship. What happened? Well, I mean, I mean, the regulators clearly have, um, you know, their reputations been tarnished through this whole 737 Max uh, problem, and. Um, and it seemed like Dennis and the regulators weren't on the same sheet of music because, you know, we, well, we don't get a lot of information for how that relationship was, was working. You know, we, we all heard that he had sort of got called to Washington to talk to the regulator a couple of weeks ago and asked not to give timetables for when the MAX was going back into service. I yeah. would have thought he would have been coordinating that with the FAA and making sure that, um, you know, they're, they're both of their views for how the process would work for getting the max into the air were in sync. And I think that was very surprising to me. All right. And I would have thought the FAA would have been looking over Boeing's shoulder as they went through all of the fixes to the max. So even though they need, they need to be able to sign off on it, you know, from an FAA standpoint as being safe, they could have seen the process and been provided some level of comfort yeah. in, in that. And it seems like we're still three months away from getting this airplane back in the air. Well, that's where I, I want wonder. Let Go me ahead, frame sorry. this again with David Calhoun taking uh, over here in January, we believe, in the stream of headlines. 
headlines uh, coming out. Greg Smith, the chief financial officer and executive vice president, will uh, uh, be the interim CEO. Of course, we know him through his uh, affiliation with the Economic Club of New York. We affiliate Boeing with Seattle, but very much headquartered in Chicago. Um, George Friedman with us right now, giving us wonderful perspective on this. Uh, George, the, the, the plane is going to get back in the air in X months. Says who? What are the engineering changes that they need to do to get the FAA okay and to get the confidence of their staffing, including pilots, and also the American public? Well, I mean, the um, as near as we can tell, uh, the you know the biggest fix is going to be a fix to software on this MCAS system. This, let's call it an anti-stall system, um, and then it's going to be training the pilots uh, to, to use this new system. As near as we can tell, that fix to MCAS is done, but the FAA has to be satisfied that okay. it won't override. Have they it. moved the engines? I mean, a lot of the geometry of this, and I'm working off the great work you did and others, particularly in Seattle. Is there an engineering change away from software? No, no. It's the uh, same plane. It, it is. And look, I think the airplane, our sense from what we've done is that, from the work we've done and the people we've talked to, is that, well, the engines change a bit of the physics. And I think it means long term they can't do much more with this airframe. The airplane, as it's designed now with an MCAS system that's working properly, is a safe airplane and will be a member of fleets for a long time. George, is there any risk here that they just scrap the 737 MAX? I don't think so. Um, I'll never say never. I hate saying never. But I don't think so because I think, as I just said, I think the airplane is safe to fly. This software system was designed to keep people out of trouble with an airplane where they'd push the engines forward. There was a risk of on on heavy thrust takeoffs of the of the um, nose being pulled up a bit and potentially getting into a stall. This was designed to keep pilots out of trouble. Clearly, they got some pilots into trouble because it was it, it provided too much deflection to the. Um, to the control surfaces on the airplane and drove the nose towards the ground. I believe that if they get the fix to that software, which I think they're done, I've heard American Airlines pilots who have gone into simulators and flown the new MCAS software and said it reacted as they expected and that they, and that they felt you know pretty confident in the safety of this of this system. I believe it means the airplane is viable and will be in fleets for a long time. I do think, though, that Boeing needs to come out of this and go at hard a new narrow body, a new 737, because they've pushed this one for all they can get. And I think that the next time that we go to, if we go to bigger engines, bigger fan sizes to... to yeah create better efficiency, I think that they can't put it underneath this airframe, and so they got to fix that, that challenge. Okay, but that gets back to the engineering issue. Is there an established understanding on people like you, all the regulators, the pilots, etc., that X the software, the existing frame, is doable? 
I think there is. It, it appears to me that there's a fair amount of consensus in the marketplace that it, it, among okay. among the, the, the smart people in, in the marketplace, which I'm, probably doesn't even include me, it includes other people that I read, <laughs> well, engineers, you know. engineering folks. Well, it's interesting, just Tom, the, in the pre-market, the stock is now trading up about 1.8% uh, in the pre-market here. So, um, so the market kind of likes what it's seeing here, that uh, change in management. So, I mean, George, long-lasting risk to reputation within the community for Boeing? Um, you know what? The the Max's problems have lasted longer than I would expected. The Starliner didn't help this week. Um, I think, yeah, I think they're they're banged up here for a couple of years on reputation for sure. Um, it's been it's been a rough year for Boeing. Okay. George, thank you so much. We're going to we're going to uh, move on here. This has been absolutely informative. Right now, joining us, Brooke Sutherland, who has been writing uh, not only this crisis, but the synthesis of it into all of manufacturing America. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us on short uh, notice. They have gone to the most obvious person here. There is clearly no time for an outside search. Within all your reporting, what is the first to do for Mr. Calhoun? I mean, I think the most obvious thing is to get the 737 MAX into the sky, but there are obviously a number of steps you have to take before you can do that. I mean, I think what we've learned in the last couple of weeks is just how strange Boeing's relationship has been with the FAA. It is hugely unprecedented for the FAA administrator to come out and publicly admonish a company like Boeing, as Steve Dixon did a couple of weeks ago really, really significant turn in this crisis. And I think that is one big reason why you're seeing Boeing make this change. And so smoothing over right. that relationship, reassuring the FAA that there is no effort at all by Boeing to try to speed up this process is essential. Yeah. But then you also have to look at the customers. Um, airlines are not happy. Southwest Airlines CEO Gary Kelly has made it abundantly clear that he is very frustrated with Boeing to the point that he's even talking about looking at airbus well that's yeah. right where i wanted to go i mean our guy our, our uh, brooke our guy johnson's on bloomberg television right now expert on toulouse and airbus are we really at risk in america of iconic brands dropping the iconic engineering technology we have and using airbus far greater in america so you have not seen that yet and a big part of that is because airbus's backlog is so long i believe it's about six years and so you'll be waiting a long time if you join the back of the line right now for an airbus jet but i do think longer term there's a significant risk of boeing losing its competitive edge losing its reputational advantage i mean all you have to do is look at the airbus a321 xlr which they just launched at the paris air show in june and boeing was supposed to be working on a competitor to that, the new middle market aircraft, and that had to be put on the shelf because of the 737 MAX crisis. Airbus has been getting tons of orders for the XLR, and that is shrinking the market share opportunity for that Boeing plane, which I think likely does not launch at this point. And I think what Airbus has essentially done is because you have to remember that the 737 MAX uh, flight control system that was you know, thought to be significantly at the root of these crashes was put in place because Airbus came out with a more fuel-efficient uh, single-body jet, and Boeing felt like that they had to respond, So they and they had to respond quickly. So they rejiggered the 737 model to adapt it to the bigger, more fuel-efficient engines, and that's why you got this flight control system. So we're really here because of competition from Airbus. And so I do think you have to worry about 
competition longer term. And S&P and Moody's, when they downgraded Boeing's credit uh, rating last week, specifically cited that risk right. when they were making that decision. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much for joining us on short notice. Greatly appreciate it this morning. Writing, of course, for Bloomberg uh, News. We rip up the script, and you can do that with someone as competent as Gregory Vallier with AGF. We should be talking politics. Maybe, Greg, we can talk about a president who was out front of his own FAA. We do this, folks, with the announcement that Mr. Millenberg will resign immediately from Boeing. David Calhoun, their lead director, will take over uh, in a matter of weeks, and their CFO, Mr. Smith, will step in as interim CEO. Greg, how does the FAA, with an annual budget of $20 gazillion a year, how do they fit into the Washington you know? Not, they're pretty low profile, Tom, considering their budget. Uh, they've obviously had a, a difficult year, as has Boeing. But, uh, yeah, very low profile. It, it, it comes within the idea of regulators are there and they're supposed to help us and there's the FDA and that and all the rest of it. But the FAA is so visceral visceral to our listeners and viewers uh, in that we fly our families on it. We, we It's an immediate thing. And I think it really goes, the president viscerally got this in March when this story broke. I mean, yep. with all the critics and the proponents of President Trump, sometimes his energy makes things happen, doesn't it? It does, Tom. He has tremendous energy, and I also would say he's got good instincts. I think he has a good finger on the pulse of the country. I think that he's very underrated in that regard. So, Greg, talk about having a good pulse on the uh, a finger on the pulse. You had a no recession call in 2019. You were pretty aggressive. Seems like the markets now agree with you. I, we've heard the word frothy come into the discussion. Is that yeah, a concern? Yeah, I, I think that this is an overbought market, to say the least. Uh, at some point, people are going to have to realize that things don't go straight up. I must say, I've been a little surprised to hear retail clients start to talk uh, in a frothy way. That sometimes can be a, a, a warning signal that the market is getting a, a little bit overvalued. What, what but, does frothy retail mean? Does that mean that they're buying the extra marginal gift, the Vallier family at Tiffany's? I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> I wish. I should be so lucky. But no, I, I think people are are not perhaps aware of the fact that markets can, can go down uh, from time to time. I, I would say this, guys. The, the reason I said all your long why I thought the recession was not remotely imminent comes from Washington. And it's not just the Fed. It's fiscal policy. I've never seen spending like this. There's a great editorial this morning in the Wall Street Journal on spending. It's totally out of control. In the short run, it's good for the economy. In the long term, we got a lot of debt to finance. Greg, you and I, we can say this in honor of people like Paul Sangas and Pete Peterson and the late uh, Paul Volcker as well. We've been talking this for decades. I know interest rates are low, yep. but but there's truly no breaks on this whatsoever. I mean, what do we do in the next budget go around? Well, no one's scared of this story because we were told if deficits took off, we'd have high inflation. We didn't. We were told if deficits really exploded, we would have uh, lower economic growth. We didn't. So with interest rates this low, it's awfully hard to convince the public right. anything to be worried about. 
how do we develop a mega ginormous infrastructure bill if that's where we're coming to? I think that we could get one. I think that Trump uh, could maybe say some of the money comes from the private sector. That's the Wilbur Ross uh, strategy. But I think next year it's going to be high on his list. Two things. Infrastructure, number one. Number two, tax cuts. Trump is going to talk yeah. aggressively. He won't get them, I don't think, but he's got a great campaign issue. I mean, Paul, it's amazing when you think of infrastructure and you divide it among tunnels to New Jersey. Yep airports mm-hmm. here there and everywhere and every other bridge that's out there that needs to be fixed i mean trillions trillions it, and, it's, it, and it's like catnip in an election to talk about that to talk about tax cuts people like hearing about that w- whether you can pay for it or not suddenly becomes less relevant i mean about that tax cut from 2017 with hindsight what is your take on that Two quick points. Number one, yes, there was a sugar high for individuals. I get that. But the positives for business persist. Lower tax rates, repatriation of earnings, very liberal depreciation schedules. All of these tax provisions have fueled the rally and continue to fuel the rally. So if we have a discussion of another tax cut, would this be the quote-unquote middle-class tax cut? Because the first one wasn't really perceived as a middle class. Well, good point, Paul. And I think that the uh, the only way this could have any chance at all of getting through the House and Nancy Pelosi would be if it was a middle class tax cut that raised taxes on corporations and the wealthy. That means it would be dead on arrival with Republicans. So I yeah. think it's, we're going to talk a lot about it, but I don't see anything happening. Greg, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate your time. And again, his morning note must read in all of political Wall Street uh, is with the AGF uh, of, of Toronto. Thrilled that Greg Vallier could join us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.